Erin, are you getting as excited as I am? How could I not? Our Global Board Leader Summit is right around the corner, and it's hands down the best thing we do all year. It is a lot of work to put it all together, though. It really is a labor of love. Four days of thought-provoking content, world-class speakers, and a veritable who's-who group of attendees to network with. We bring in innovators, thought leaders, and disruptors from across a variety of sectors who challenge the way we think about business as usual. And this week, we're looking back at some of our favorite speakers from Summit's past. Some of them will be familiar to our listeners, folks like Howard Ross and Anurima Bargava. But we're introducing others like Keiton Williams and Jia Jang for the first time on this series. Each of them have something to add to the conversations we've been having around inclusion, bias, and the future of culture and work. I'm Ashley Marchand Orm. And I'm Erin Essenmacher. And you're listening to Future Fluency, the podcast where we explore the changing face of America through the lens of innovation, culture, and their impact on business, brought to you by the National Association of Corporate Directors. Speakers like the ones we host every year at our Global Board Leaders Summit are exactly how Future Fluency came about. We wanted to explore how to continue this conversation throughout the year. We'll kick things off today with Howard Ross, discussing how the workplace can help bring us together and foster a greater sense of belonging. I am going to jump right in because I want to suggest that where we are right now is at the heart of the challenge we're facing, not only um, as in American society, but also around the world. If we look at what's going on around the world, you know, we can see the kinds of things that are happening, whether it's Brexit, whether it's the movement to ban certain religious clothing in countries in Northern Europe that historically have been socially liberal. So tribalism is sweeping the planet. And we, of course, have our own examples of that here. And I want to break it down a little bit in the short time I have with you to look at not only what's going on and why is it going on, but most importantly, what can we do about it? Because one of the things that I would assert to you is that organizations today, workplaces today, are one of the best hopes that we have to bring people together. Because as you'll see in some of the statistics I'm going to share with you, the separation is beyond anything we've ever seen before. But, but work is one of these places where you don't get to choose who you sit next to and have to work with. And if that person comes in and they voted for somebody different than you or if they're of a different racial, cultural, ethnic group than you or different gender than you, it doesn't matter because you need to actually work together with that person. First of all, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy. Right? What Maslow said basically, as, as most of us know, is pretty simple. He said, Certain things have to be handled before you worry about other things. You know, your physiological needs have to be handled first, then up to safety, then belonging, then self-esteem, and finally self-actualization. Said simply, if you're starving to death, you're not going to be sitting around contemplating life. You're going to be out looking for food. What the neuroscience is showing us is that Maslow is probably wrong. That belonging is actually our key human need. And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense. The most vulnerable time of a human being's existence is, of course, infancy. We're born into vulnerability. And the first message that we get in our lives is, I exist because you exist. And because human beings need to be taken care of for longer than any other animal, we, that actually gets deeply embedded in us. And so it's no surprise, for example, that being excluded from a group triggers activity in the same regions of the brain, the dorsal posterior insula, that's associated with physical pain. This is why bullying is so challenging. This is why exclusion is so challenging. And all of us have had that time when you're with people it's something as simple, sometimes the three of you are at dinner and the two other people get into this deep conversation and you feel left out of it. And you feel that sense of wanting to get in because we're actually driven to participate. 
We're driven to connect with groups around us. So let's look at this in terms of the political divide. Let's look first to what's happening in our politics. This is what our politics looked like in 1994, a basic bell curve. You know, most people, fewer people on the ends, most people in the middle, and mostly on an issue-by-issue orientation. So I might agree with you on gun rights, but disagree with you on foreign policy, and agree with you on civil rights, and disagree with you on domestic policy. That was basically the way we functioned. Now look what happens over the course of the next 20-some years. We've gone from a bell curve to a dumbbell curve, where everything's on the end and nothing's in the middle. We don't even listen to each other anymore. And when we look at the identities in these voting patterns, we can see that it's gone beyond simply politics. It's now associated with identity. So we're no longer saying, I disagree with you about gun rights. We're now saying, you're one of those kind of people. When we evaluate people based on issues, it's impersonal. You're a good guy, but I disagree with you about gun control, for example. When we evaluate people based on identity, it's not only personal, but it also becomes very easy to stereotype people. In addition to that, we're living more with people who are like us than ever before. That means that you're mostly living around people who agree with you, people who go to your grocery store, your barber shop, or whatever else largely agree with you. We're living in echo chambers of our own creation. No, I just had a conversation with somebody from the other side of the political spectrum waiting here. And we're both reasonable people. We both want the best for this country. We just see things differently. But unfortunately, we're both saying how rare it is that we can have these conversations anymore, even with family members, because we automatically tend to divide people between them and us. Welcome to our culture today, right? We're, we're, we're desperately trying to separate ourselves from each other. So what can we do? You know, in a couple of minutes I have left, because... As I believe, as citizens of this democracy, whether we're on the left or on the right of this conversation, we have a responsibility to something larger than ourselves. We have a responsibility to reestablish the ability to listen to each other, to respect each other's humanity, even as we disagree with each other's points of view. We have a responsibility to understand and fully embrace our own points of view, but remember that they're points of view and not absolute truth. And so there are some things that we can do about this. You know, one is, it starts with recognizing your own biases and origins. To recognize that we don't come into these conversations clean. We come with an already conversation about the way it is. And we look to gather information that supports our point of view. And as John Kenneth Galbraith, the great economist, once said, most human beings given a strongly held point of view and evidence to the contrary will quickly go about refuting the evidence. Right? So how can we make sure that we understand our own biases and include that in our thinking? The second is to really seek to understand the other's point of view. That doesn't mean necessarily agree with it. It doesn't mean you have to back off on your point of view, but to really understand especially why they think the way they do. The third is to increase your skills and comfort level with others, to learn to engage, to have courageous conversations, and to do it in appropriate ways. And I'm going to leave you with the tool in just a second to do that. The fourth is to take responsibility for this world we're living in, to look at ways that we can actually build bridges. The, the, th the fifth is to be willing to engage and to be vulnerable, to share with people what is it that concerns you about what I'm talking about. Why does this scare you? And then lastly, to resist the temptation for perfection and look for benefits of progress, how we're moving, because we're getting so perfectionistic that if people don't hit the litmus test of every point, they're not one of us, which causes even more polarization, because in order to be on either side, you have to be ideologically pure. Ideological purity is dangerous. There's, no, there's nothing more dangerous than an idea when it's the only one you have. So I want to leave you with a quick tool that you could use, and I'd even encourage you to try it today. It comes from a woman named Elizabeth Lesser. 
which called it Take the Other to Lunch. So it starts when you actually find somebody who disagrees with you about something and tell them you'd like to have a conversation with them, not to persuade, not to defend or interrupt, but to be curious and authentic and listen, to really try to understand each other. That's the point of the conversation, not debate to try to convince anybody but just to really get yourself in their head and figure out where they're coming from. And then you very simply ask four questions. The first is, what in your life experience has led you to believe what you do? Now this is incredibly important because you begin to see, wow, if I grew up in that person's narrative, I might see the world just like they did. That's very different than there's evil over there and good over here or right over here and wrong over there. And we begin to understand that it's our narrative that gives us the world we see. The second is, what about this issue deeply concerns or frightens you? Because fear is at the heart of most human interaction, and especially at the heart of most human reaction. And if we can get to what frightens people, then often when both of us are talking about what scares us, then we can, we can negotiate because we're underneath the point of view looking at the cause of the point of view. It's very difficult to negotiate just the point of view without looking at the cause. My wife wants to keep the window open at night. I want to keep it closed. We argue back and forth about it until she says, look, I like fresh air and I say I'm cold and it's noisy, so I get an electric blanket with half the, blanket can be, half the bed can be heated and I get earplugs and she can keep the window open because we looked at cause. You know, why we wanted those points of view. The third is, what have you always wanted to ask someone from the other side? I was doing one of these once, there was a straight and a gay guy, they were talking about this, and the straight guy says to the gay guy, when did you decide to be gay? And the gay guy looks back at him and says, I don't know, when did you decide to be straight? And the guy's jaw kind of fell. Right? And then finally, is there anything you'd like to say to clean up the past? Because we often, we often find ourselves in circumstances where something changes, but rather than going back and saying, hey, I'm sorry I did that, we kind of drag it with us into the future. But to go and say, you know what, I was wrong, I apologize, here's what you can count on me for the future. And it's our responsibility to end with this one little story by a guy named Lauren Isley. The story goes that Isley was walking down the beach one morning and he sees a guy dance, looks like dancing in the distance. And when he gets closer, he realizes he's not dancing at all. He's actually throwing something into the water. And the closer he gets, he realizes that there's starfish all over the beach that have been washed up by the tide and the guy's tossing them back in the water. And he says to him, why are you doing that? He says, well, if the starfish stay out in the sunshine, they'll die. So I'm tossing them back in the water to save them. And he looks up and down the beach, Isley looks up and down the beach, he sees these thousands of starfish, and he says, there's so many of them, you can't think it will make a difference. The guy reaches down and says, made a difference to that one. You see, every conversation we have that bridges the barrier, every conversation with that cousin, uncle, mother, sister, father, friend, that gets back and connected with our humanity makes a difference. And what I want to leave you with this morning is let's get out there and start throwing some of those starfish. Wow, that is some really powerful stuff. I'm ready to get out there and start throwing starfish. <laughs> and it reminds me of a talk from Summit last year on the power of failure by Jia Jiang. Stepping out to take risks is necessary for growth, and you have to start somewhere. Jia is the author of Rejection Proof and the owner of Rejection Therapy, an organization designed to help foster more fearless leaders. During his talk, Ja recounted an interesting and kind of crazy project he undertook that underscores the inextricable link between risk and innovation. So, I know, we all should embrace rejection and failure. But let's be honest, who actually likes rejection and failure? Raise your hand. Anyone? Good. All right, let me ask you an easier question. How many of you actually like gifts? Raise your hand. I do. Cool, okay. I love gifts. But for a moment in my life, I didn't like gifts that much. Why? When I was a six-year-old, 
I grew up in Beijing, China, and my first grade teacher came up with this brilliant idea that she wanted us to not only get gifts, but also learn the virtue of complimenting each other at the same time. So she had all of us come to the front of the classroom. There were 40 of us. She said, why don't you guys say nice things about each other? If you hear your name called by someone else, you can go pick up a gift and sit down. And she stacked all the gifts in the corner. What a great idea, right? What could go wrong? <laughs> when it started, it was great. Every time I heard someone else's name was called, I would give the heartiest cheer. Yay, when it's my turn. Then there were 20 people left and 10 left. At the end, there were three left. That's where the compliments stopped. And I was one of them. At, at that moment, I didn't want to give anymore. I didn't want to compliment uh, you know, anymore. I just want to sit down. I was crying. I had no idea why people wouldn't say nice things about me. I thought I was cool. I thought I was popular. Then I saw who was standing next to me I knew otherwise because I hated those two kids. <laughs> and the teacher's freaking out. She was like, oh my God, when you want to say anything that nice about these people? No? Okay, you guys just pick up a gift and sit down. Um, you behave better next year so someone can say something nice about you. You know, ever since that day, I would just die not to be in that situation again, you know, getting rejected in public. But I also have ambitions. So one day I woke up, I was 30. I felt stuck. You know, I, I was, I, I, I mean, I had a good job. I was working at a Fortune 500 company, but I felt stuck because I, don't, I wasn't progressing. And what happened? So looking back, I found every time I had this a new thoughts, I want to do something, I want to step out. Or even at work, I want to propose a new idea. I want to try something, I want to innovate. One wanted to change the world, another was afraid of rejection. And guess what? Every time, that six-year-old won. And so when I was 30, I finally stepped, uh, I finally took a stand. I'm like, I want to start my own company. So I quit my job, and I thought, this is the start of my conquering my own fear. And it wasn't. A few months into my company building venture, I was presented with a major investment opportunity. Um, and I really thought I was going to get an investment. One day, I was at the restaurant celebrating a friend's birthday. There was singing and happiness all around me. Then I phone, my phone vibrated. It was from this investor. It was, it was a one-liner email. Just said, nope, we're not going to do this. I had to just um, um, you know, stand up and walk out so people wouldn't see me crying in front of them. At that moment, it was like the six-year-old was standing on my shoulders again. He was like, who do you think you are? You don't be this entrepreneur? That's for the geniuses. You are just a wannabe. You should quit now. And that, at that moment, it dawned on me. Would anyone successful at anything wanting to give up after rejection like that? No way. So I can build a better company and a better team. But one thing for sure is I got to be a better person. I have to solve that, I have to solve that rejection problem once for all. So uh, what did I do? I searched online. Uh, Google is my friend. So I searched, how do I overcome my fear of rejection? I saw a bunch of articles about psychology, where is your fear and pain coming from? Then I saw a website that, is called, uh, that got me interested. It's called rejectiontherapy.com. Basically, <laughs> and so rejection therapy is this game invented by this Canadian entrepreneur, and he's got some real rejection issues. So <clears throat> he came up with a deck of 30 cards, and each card will give you some ways to get rejected at. The idea is if you go through 30 rejections in a row, you would desensitize yourself from the pain of rejection. You become 
this badass, you know. I'm like, that's the best idea I've ever heard, you know. I want to be a badass. You know, I, I want to be a badass ass of them all. So I said, I'm going to do this. Um, but instead of doing this for 30 days, how about if I do this for 100 days? Let me overdose on rejection. I'm going to see what happens. So, uh, so one day, I finished a burger for lunch, and I went to the cashier. I said, can I get a burger refill? And he was confused. He was, he was like, what do you mean a burger refill? I was like, just like, just like a free drink refill, but with a burger instead. He was like, sorry, we don't know burger refill, man. That's where the rejection happened. But this time, I didn't run. I was like, wow, I love your burger. If you give me a burger refill, I will come back here every day. I would, I would tell everyone about it. It's actually a good idea for a free burger, right? He was like, ah, sorry, I can't do this because uh, we can't give out free food. I don't want to get in trouble with my manager. I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's where I left. Then, then as I kept doing this, and, and like strange things started to happen, like really weird things. People started to say yes to me, one after another. So one day, I was at the, um, I would knock on strangers' uh, a door. The guy opened the door, and he, has this, he was a big guy. He has a giant Texas flag on his T-shirt. If you're from Texas, you know people do that there. Um, so so I, I said, can I, um, can I play soccer in your backyard? He was, like, he was like, soccer in my backyard? Then he looked at me. I was serious. serious. I was serious. I had a soccer ball, shin guards, cleats, all decked out. And he was like, sure, come on in. I'm like, now what? <laughs> so I just did a little bit of dribbling uh, in the backyard. And before leaving, I said, how can you say yes to me? He was like, dude, this is so off the wall. How can I say no? <clears throat> so then there's another day. I mean, I just kept doing this. And people started saying yes to me one after another. And there's a, I, was, I, was, I was flying planes. And I taught a, I, I taught a college class. And uh, it's just... Um, I have some, by the way, I have video evidence for all of these. Uh, if you want to go to my, my uh, YouTube channel, you can see all of them. But, and because of this, my, my blog got really popular. There are over 10 million views on my, on my blog. And people start using these as sales trainings, innovation trainings. And then I start getting emails from strangers from all over the world. And so, and throughout this process, I learned a lot of things. I want to share some of with you. The most important thing is I learned the answer to this question. What is rejection? What is the thing we're so afraid of? But if you overcome that fear, you can actually make some really interesting things. You can actually, actually overcome a lot, of, um, uh, a lot of obstacles. As it turned out, rejection is pretty much a numbers game. It's a numbers game. I love Harry Potter. It's the best-selling book in modern history. It blew every other book out of water. And you would think a book that good, and when it first came out, every publisher on earth would fight among themselves trying to publish the book, right? That wasn't the case. The author, J.K. Rowling, she had to go through 12 different rejections to get her book published. And every time she heard the same thing, this is a children's book, this long, and it's about dark magic, and people are dying in the book? Come on, try something real. Get a real job. But think, it, but think about it. Had, had J.K. Rowling give up on any of the 12 tries, there would be no big fight between Harry Potter and Voldemort at the end. It would make me really mad. A lot of times, our, the way for us to succeed is not just for our skills, even for luck. It's also based on our ability to fight over rejections and failures. And then rejection is an opinion, just an opinion. I think we need many things in this world. We need more love and sympathy, definitely more bathrooms and free drinks. But one thing we have plenty of is an opinion. Um, 
if you don't believe me, just get on the internet or turn on your TV. Everyone has something to say about something. And they can't wait to tell you how they feel about the world. But rejection is nothing more than the opinion and, and, and preference of someone else. It actually says more about the rejector than the rejected. In these 100 days, I could ask the same question to 10 different people. Someone would say yes, someone would say no. Someone would smile, someone just couldn't wait to get away from me faster. It says everything about that person's state of mind or maybe what happened to him or her the night before, it's nothing to do with me. But when it comes to rejection, we think it's all about us. We think it's, that's why we take it so personal. It's not, it's just an opinion. And also rejection is a source of knowledge. I learned so many things and discovered so many, uh, so many secrets about how do you get people to say yes to you while maintaining authentic? How do you turn a no into a yes? How do you say no to people without destroying the relationships? Just ask, just ask. We think rejection is so terrible, so terrifying. So by, so by us not asking, we're avoiding the negative, so we're achieving that positive, right? That's just a lie. It's a lie we keep telling ourselves every day because when you're not getting out there and getting rejected, you're just rejecting yourself by default. So no matter what happens, let the world reject you and never reject yourself. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've heard Howard offer excellent tools for shifting our perspectives when it comes to bias and culture. And Ja just gave us some tips on how to set aside some of our fear around starting those conversations in the first place. And those conversations are really important if we want to innovate in the evolving and ever-changing face of what work is and who is doing that work. And this is true as we look across sectors and industries, whether we're focusing on customer service or more deeply on workforce engagement. Katan Williams is with the Impact America Fund, an investment company that funds market opportunities which use technology to enhance the lives of all Americans. He spoke in 2018 about how the way we develop technologies now will have lasting impact on the shape of society moving forward. Bruno Latour, who is a French sociologist of science, wrote that technology is society made durable. And what he means is that technology is a material expression of our society as it is today and as we'd like it to be in the future. It's not something separate. For instance, cars and the automotive industry that sprung up around them in the early decades of the 20th century in the US were focused on a particular vision of American society. There are numerous benefits to cars, of course, but there are significant costs. Climate change is spurred on by automobile emissions. Car crashes are a leading killer of Americans. Many communities were disconnected and destroyed because of an emphasis on cutting through with highways. I live in Silicon Valley, and I've been frequently stuck in traffic. And when I look around, I can see that the other cars around me all have only one other person in them. All those people stuck in one block of traffic could actually fit in a bus and reduce congestion. But to make that a reliable option for most people, we'd have to make serious systematic changes. We'd have to make cities denser, more investment in public infrastructure, changes to work hours. The exciting thing is that this is already happening. Driven by a recognition of the cost of cars and the effects of climate change, many cities around the US are returning to an emphasis on their urban cores, prioritizing foot traffic, bicycles, public transit over cars. And I think we're approaching a similar crisis in digital technology, at least for consumers. I think the current way we develop technologies is unsustainable and poorly focused on the diverse needs of our communities. It's not clear what our vision for our current technological world is. 
we're not giving enough consideration to the collective impact in our quest for innovation. We're building now, figuring it out later. Big data, machine learning, AI, mobile and internet com computing, all these technologies and the com companies that offer them, they have an unprecedented ability to shape our lives. This is less obvious than the car and the highways as an expression of our society, but I think it's far more profound, perhaps for that reason. This expansion of digital technologies now requires us to deeply consider impact as we develop products and companies today so that we can move forward to a more sustainable and equitable future, future tomorrow. Um, just maybe 28 hours ago, I was in Barcelona with my family. I'd brought my parents to see Europe for the first time. Um, and this trip resulted in a treasure trove of comedic material that I don't have the time to share with you. But the experience was also very transformative in a way that is applicable here. Um, one of the things is that seeing the world, seeing Europe through my parents' eyes, gave me a sharpened perspective on what we're building today, who we're building it for, or more likely who we're not building it for. To get to Europe, I booked our flights through this subscription service that ferrets out cheap tickets. Once we got there, we stayed in apartments that we booked through Airbnb. We got around the city through ride-sharing platforms like Uber. We navigated the city and I made critical decisions by looking through the little rectangular frame of my smartphone. This trip would have been impossible without those tools. But my ability to use them fluently stirred up a lot of emotions for me. I was constantly asking myself, why was this my 10th trip to Europe, but only their first? Perhaps that's because I'm a mediocre son. <laughs> but <laughs> I think the bigger thing is that why, is, why was I able to navigate this world in a way that they were not? Why are so many things built for someone imagined to be like me, but not for them, even though there are so few of me and so many of them? This isn't the first time I've thought this. My PhD fieldwork was done alongside black entrepreneurs who are striving, striving to build products that would garner them Silicon Valley's attention. Silicon Valley largely wasn't interested, not because the technology wasn't good, but because they didn't understand the problems these entrepreneurs were trying to solve. So today, I'm a little bit scared and a little bit excited at the same time, because I think the tide is beginning to shift, and we're beginning to listen to the diverse needs of communities around us, and trying to tackle the serious structural issues in our society. And this is coming at a critical time. The populations of the US and Western Europe are becoming more and more diverse. We can see this in the changing demographics of consumers, workers, builders, leaders. But that demographic growth is not aligned with economic growth. There are wide gaps in the wealth, income, skills, and opportunity. And that gap is increasing, not decreasing. Median wage in the US over the last 50 years has stayed flat, while the rich have been getting richer. And as you can imagine, this gap aligns with racial lines. And a lot of that gap, I think, is determined by our access to technology and automation. One group works below what we refer to as the API line. Their lives are scheduled and policed by automation and computing platforms, like Uber, like Kronos. The other group are above it, typically building and directing this automation, like myself. For all our talk about the sharing economy in technology, this gap separates those who provide services and those who receive them. There's actually not that much sharing. <laughs> <laughs>
It's getting there, it's getting there. <laughs> this is a critical time for those of us who want to deliver real fundamental change to the imbalances in the current economy. Today, software is eating the world. More and more of how we interact with each other is defined by choices made by technologists and the people who hire them. We're building self-driving cars, scooters for cities, voice-activated systems for your homes, platforms that predict what kind of clothes you like to wear. Today, we've come to recognize that building in this new world requires us to consider a broader set of responsibilities than we've done before. And this is not just about Twitter and Facebook or Google and Amazon, though it's easy to single them out. We've granted thousands of these companies and apps access to our intimate lives, and this is just beginning. Compared to the car, we're at a very early stage in technology development. We need to make sure that the companies we lead and champion are contributing to the development of world that we want to live in, and that they're abiding by a set of principles that make sense for our communities. This requires us to set goals for ourselves beyond the seemingly neutral values of connection or productivity or innovation. And it won't be the first time our corporate values have evolved this way. We certainly think about and take more action on corporate culture than we did a few decades ago. This event is evidence of that. And perhaps most critically of all, the people who will build this future, who and will inhabit it, already want this guidance and support from you. Today's best and brightest employees, the ones that will power many of your companies, are looking for strong vision and moral and ethical leadership. The engineers who have been reshaping the world through software for the benefit of their employers are now vocally expressing concerns about what their companies are doing. This will last beyond this election cycle, and it will expand into other sectors beyond tech. These employees want to see ethics boards. They want to see institutional changes that open up a conversation about how products and services are designed, who designs them, and who they are designed for. If we're building companies and products and solutions that affect a company, that affect a community, that community must be drawn into the decision-making process. I don't know yet what a more inclusive, deliberate corporate governance system might look like. These are the kinds of technologies that we should invest in, though. Tools that help us with the kinds of complex, collaborative decision-making we need to actually make truly sustainable, significant impact. But what I do know is that your leadership will be key to this transformative impact. And I do know that when you do this, the world will open up to you. Today, we need more than design that looks good. We need design that does good. It's ambitious, but I think that's why we're here, to think further ahead and incorporate the longer-term, more structural outcomes we want to support. What are those values you want to put into your products, your company, and society at large? Can you make them explicit? Can you measure them as KPIs for the world to see? This is about the design of your organizations too, our organizations. We need to hire a more diverse range of people across race, age, and skill area. We can't just leave the world up to engineers. And this will match the increasingly broad range of people who will use products and services. And the truth is, this can feel like a risk. But I think it's more of a risk not to embrace the challenge and do this work today. Maintaining the status quo can feel like a sensible strategy. Your financial performance looks good. Employees aren't yet agitating. Letting in diverse voices now can lead to what feels like complication and stress. 
It takes additional work to manage those voices. It takes additional work to simultaneous, simultaneously manage financial performance, value, and social impact values. If your competitors aren't doing that, it might feel like they're outpacing you. But acting today creates a virtual, a virtual cycle that'll put you ahead tomorrow. A focus on impact becomes a transformative competitive advantage. With a more diverse workforce, your company begins to change if you listen to those voices. Studies show that centering values and pushing for a diverse set of people and ideas creates an anti-fragile position that grows stronger in chaos, not weaker. This way you can thrive, not just survive. But this is important because we cannot have truly transformative impact on the world. We cannot change the world for the better without being changed ourselves. We must allow that focus to transform us and our institutions. Expect to be transformed, plan to be transformed, and you will be. And in the midst of all this transformation, there's a lot of disruption to contend with. Our listeners will remember Anurima Bhargava, who's talked with us before about developing a broader culture of diversity and acceptance, as well as how we rethink our companies in an era of globalization. Anurima spoke at Summit on the challenges of cultural shifts like the Me Too movement and how we can move from a place of scandal and upheaval to forward progress and cultural growth. Earlier this year, I received a call from a board member of a corporation. I had just read that the founder and CEO of, that, uh, CEO of that corporation, after a weeks-long external investigation, had been found to have engaged in sexual harassment and abuse. The board asked him to resign. He did. I thought the board member was calling me in his defense. She was not. Instead, she was calling to talk about what they had unearthed in that process. Women who ran their regional offices though they were not the subject of their harassment by the CEO, felt long marginalized and silenced. The corporation in its systems and practices bore his mark. Women had left, others had struggled to stay. And so the board member asked me, where do we go from here? It's the right question. And I was completely surprised by it. Because in this era of Me Too and gotcha liability, we are focused on those incidents of harassment. We dissect them. And we put them on show. And we pay very, very little attention to the systems and practices that lead up to them and the systems and practices that remain in their wake. The CEO, CEO's resignation was a necessary first step, but it could not stop harassment from taking place in the future. It did not take account of how culture needed to change to be safe and supportive for all employees. So how do we do that? How do we build and design a more effective workplace where employees feel supported and safe on the front end? We need to move forward from a culture of fear and defensiveness to one of engagement and support, from avoiding liability to implementing what actually works, and from a business that pushes out those who speak up and discards bad apples to a business where good employees have spaces to positively engage. That's good business. Thanks to my colleagues at Harvard, researchers, and the experiences of companies in this room, we know some steps to start. Step one, do not rely on formal grievance procedures alone. Have lots of ways that people can report. 
including anonymously to ombudspersons, to external task forces. Second, refresh the routine and tired harassment training that many of us use and expand it to include training on respectful workplaces and bystander intervention. Three, encourage and support the free flow of information. You don't know what's going on if you don't hear about it. Instu include stopping the use of mandatory arbitration and non-disclosure agreements. Fourth, do periodic climate surveys to assess the company's health and well-being. These four steps are not unfamiliar to you, it is, but it's important to get them right to create a safe and supportive workplace. Yet as recent Harvard Business Review studies have shown, they have not had a significant impact on reducing sexual harassment. The best and perhaps only way to do that is to bring in and promote more women. It's a vicious cycle. Women don't stay in workplaces where there is sexual harassment or where they don't feel safe or valued. These next four steps have been successful at slowing, if not ending, that cycle. Step five, the important one, mentor. Invest in mentorship programs. That includes each of you. It's shown time and time ago, again that something simple like mentorship has a significant measurable impact on women in leadership positions. Six, create spaces for employees across a range of positions to work together and manage each other. Help to break down those barriers that are built up by fear. Seven, establish norms and core values around inclusion and diversity that treat women with dignity and integrity and engage leadership in spreading those norms and core values. Eight, to channel Howard just earlier, listen. Support and don't shut down spaces where experiences of sexual harassment can be shared and discussed. Don't be afraid. Encourage truth-telling and when asked, to investigate. Me Too need not be an era of fear, but it must be an urgent point of opportunity. Your leadership is needed right now, not to play gotcha and get rid of a few rotten apples, but to ground yourself in the soil, to make sure the roots are watered and that they have room to grow, to demand environments where segregation and harassment is not tolerated and women anchor strong and diverse leadership teams, to define corporate social responsibility, not just as the way your business practices impact the world, but how your business practices impact the careers and lives of the women in your workplaces. Culture change starts from the top. It starts with you. These conversations have got me pumped, not just for this year's summit, which will be amazing, but also for our next set of conversations on the future of work. That's right. Next time, we'll chat with experts and thought leaders on what work will look like in the years to come and some of the things that will influence how that future looks. The definition of workforce itself is changing. And it has two components. The first component, of course, is the human capital uh, part of the workforce. And the second part, I think, is what I call now the participation of machines in the workforce. Here's the way I think about it. At any given moment in time, there's a set of problems that technology can solve. And then, conversely, there's also a set of problems that technology can't solve, and therefore you need humans to do it. And then as technology advances, it can now solve new problems that we used to need humans for. And that can result in job displacement, absolutely. But then there's always this new frontier of new problems that we always create for ourselves and that we need humans for again. 
That's next time on Future Fluency. For guest bios, more resources, and a link to this episode's transcript, check out the show notes or the episode page at nacdonline.org slash podcast. Future Fluency is produced and edited by Bruno Falcon with production support from Carrie Sheehan. Special thanks to Jeanette Woods. Our theme song was composed by Kyle Oppenheimer. Future Fluency is a production of the National Association of Corporate Directors. For more information on NACD or to become a member, please visit nacdonline.org.